This is an ABC podcast. And coming to you from Gadigal Land, another week of the Little Wireless Program. And we have three very different stories for you tonight, but I think they can all be linked under the heading of mystery. First of all, Laura Tingle will investigate the mystery of the federal budget. Then we've got uh, Ian Dunt and Naomi Smith on the mystery of number 10, and finally, we will be talking about the mystery of Agatha Christie. But first, our mingle with tingle. The risks of uh, putting a brave new vision have been shown in the UK, and while we're not expecting anything like that here, Laura, it does show the risks a budget can create for a government. Lots of risks, Philip, um, and especially for Labor governments, just given that um, the coalition has been so effective over the years in entrenching this idea that um, that they're the only ones who can manage the economy and that Labor is, um, you know, inherently dangerous. <laughs> and, um, I, I mean, I think this it, this sort of uh, hovers over, over Labor consciousness. We saw that with... Um, Wayne Swan uh, back in the day when he was treasurer and um, you, you can see it in the way Jim Chalmers, I think, approached this budget very early on. I think there's this, there this real sense with this budget, even before the world economy started to go pear-shaped, they wanted to sort of establish the idea of Labor being responsible, not very flashy, you know, consolidating the budget, or you know, just being line by line, all this sort of language we've heard about, um, just doing all the housekeeping. Um, and, you know, he didn't have to have a budget now, um, but he's ha- having one, he's setting it up to uh, have, I think, bigger discussions uh, next year about, about spending and about um, serious tax reform. I expect that's where it's going to go, but um, he's been trying to make a virtue of being dull, I think. Okay. There's plenty of precedent, of course, for a, a treasurer saying that they can't afford the promises that have been made. Is that the path we'll go down? I don't think so, Philip. I think the government will deliver on uh, most of the promises it's made. I mean, there are uh, the coalition's saying, oh, well, it promised that energy prices would fall by a couple of hundred bucks. Now, that's that's sort of one of those promises that you can't actually sort of legislate or anything. Well, no, well, you can't. <coughs> Excuse me, it's an aspiration. Uh, but I think in terms of any promises they've made about increased, you know, childcare assistance and things like that, those promises will be met and they're going to be met within the framework of arguing that these are things that will actually boost the pr- product productivity of the economy by helping people uh, get, get back to work. So all of the spending that they're doing will be sort of framed in those terms uh, and I think the promises will be kept. So the government's very keen on sort of trying to re-establish, you know, the credibility of politicians who make very big promises. Is it a convention? Is it a convention to put out a revised budget so soon into a new government's term? Well, I don't know what the convention is particularly anymore, Philip. I mean, it's sort of... We, we seem to be having budgets at such odd times of the year. I mean, we had a budget in late March this year, which is sort of weird because of, we were having an election um, you know, instead of May. Uh, now we're having an October budget. Um, I think uh, given the deteriorating state of uh, the world economy, there's an argument for doing it. And there's an argument for getting cracking on, you know, look, doing all of those housekeeping matters. But I was just thinking about it tonight, actually, that 
It seems like a long time since we had the, you know, if you look through your files of budget cliches used by journalists and let, let's let's um, just assert that they're fairly well thumbed, the old budget rabbit out of a hat. It's been a while since we've <laughs> heard that one. We, we, we don't have rabbits out of hats very often these days. It's a much more dull affair uh, because things have all been sort of, you know, we have all these crises instead of rabbits out of hats. So... Um, I think there is an argument for doing it, but um, it, is, it is going... I think the Treasurer is a bit, a bit hurt that I've suggested he's dull, but um, I think he's been working at it quite hard to be so dull. Any... Uh, well, I mentioned earlier the fuss in response to trust in the UK. Will the, the government be worried about the market response? Well, look, I don't think they will because the market response in the UK was really about unfunded tax cuts, which were just barking mad. I mean, there was, there was no design uh, credibility or, you know, elegance or anything to them. They were just... It was just crazy stuff. Um, it was unfunded. The, the, the big problem for the government is really about their tax cuts, um, well, the Coalition's tax cuts, which Labor has endorsed, the, the famous Stage 3 tax cuts. Now, they're not going to come in for a couple of years and we clearly saw Jim Chalmers sort of uh, flying the kite a few weeks ago of saying, well, it's a cautionary tale from the UK. Without a doubt, the argument is building both in the community and from the government that these are not tax cuts that you can either justify or that make sense in the current fiscal times, if you if you like. So the the lesson from the UK is that I think if the government goes ahead with these tax cuts, brackets, which I don't think they will, um, that they will be marked down by the markets for doing so. Now, the government claims to have found $22 billion in savings that they can uh, redirect to new priorities. Under whose couch did they find the cash? Well, it, there's $22 billion of money, <laughs> but it's not all savings, Philip. It's about $10 billion, I think, which is... Uh, actual savings, and that's um, a lot of it's come from infrastructure. Uh, and th there are some projects which uh, the coalition announced. Um, the government says that they're pork barrelling. We haven't seen the full details of them, but there are some of them. Dodgy isn't the right word, but um, shall we say uh, under-documented. Underdocumented, I think we'd say, Philip. Like there's, you know, they, they promised 400-odd million for some particular infrastructure project which had no, no uh, documentation about what would happen and it didn't have any sort of matching funding from the state government even though it was, you know, required to be an equally funded uh, scheme. So they found uh, about $10 billion of money that um, they, they say that they can cut much to the outrage of the nationals. Uh, but the, about $11 billion of it is uh, money which will be reprioritised, uh, that is, put to other projects or delayed. And the argument there is that some of these projects uh, are basically only adding to inflation because there simply aren't enough people to build the infrastructure projects and it's actually pushing up prices and, um, and creating sort of all these supply chain problems in the construction sector, which isn't helping anybody. Now, there will be money for childcare, aged care, NDIS? Uh, there will be. I mean, there's a few interesting questions here, Philip. The um, aged care, there's, the, the government's got to make a provision on the presumption that uh, the aged care workforce will be paid more, um, which will obviously partly um, reflect in the aged care budget, but they've got to wait for the Fair Work Commission to actually hand down the decision. So... There'll be allowances made in, in those areas. Um, I think the, the question of what they put into the NDIS is going to be really interesting given that um, Bill Shorten, who's the minister responsible for it, has announced a review of the NDIS and there are all sorts of you know, terrible problems in the NDIS. So how exactly they you know, hit a target for how much extra money they give it in the short term is going to be interesting as, as a thing to watch tomorrow night. Last week we saw Green Senator Lydia Thorpe's personal life in the uh, in the spotlight. She was deputy leader in the Senate, but no more. 
She's not. She's um, she's uh, she. I think the the the. Uh, I don't know. If I can't. It's it's been a few days. Well, I can't remember if she was technically pushed or whether she resigned. But uh, she she left, and I think a few issues have come up here. One of them is just the question of judgment about whether it's a really smart idea to hang around with an ex bikey, no matter what how good a friend he might be to you, uh, particularly when you're sitting on a law enforcement committee that's getting briefings from um, the federal police about the activities of criminal gangs and bikies. Um, now, uh, Lydia Thorpe's friend uh, has no criminal conviction. Uh, he's no longer the head of whichever bikie organisation he was in, but it, there are a few things here. One of them is there's just the question of judgment about you know, whether that's a really good idea when, um, particularly if you're a Green senator, you do spend your life attacking the lower standards of the major parties. Uh, and th there are questions, I think, which have alarmed colleagues across the parliament about whether she, she's, uh, you know, they're going back through all the briefings they had. She says that she's done nothing wrong, but she has referred, self-referred, as they say, she's asked... Um, the uh, Senate to uh, consider looking at her case uh, in the Privileges Committee. Um, now, uh, that process may play out. In the meantime, that means she doesn't comment on it. But the Law Enforcement Committee that she was sitting on has also been looking at this matter and it, it, it wants to know what she heard, you know, in these briefings and whether there are any questions of potential leaks of information as a result. It's, it's just not what... She, you know, she's a young firebrand senator who has, uh, you know, wants to make a really big mark and make a big uh, impact on the Indigenous affairs area, but you, you don't need this sort of stuff uh, when you're trying to make that impact, and it's divided the Indigenous community itself. Well, some Indigenous leaders like uh, Marcia, Marcia yes. Langton, are calling for her to be stripped of her role as uh, Indigenous Affairs spokeswoman. Exactly. So that's that sort of... I mean, she's she's a... She is a firebrand. She's a, a divisive figure, I think, in, in Victorian circles, um, you know, and uh, the fact that Marcia Langton's come out, I think, reflects that. Um, that's partly because of Lydia uh, Lydia Thorpe's stand on The Voice, uh, which is um, focused on different arms of uh, the Uluru Statement being uh, sort of pursued at different times, but also just clearly has rubbed, up, rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. So, as I said, you just don't need this sort of stuff. And to appear to have taken, ignored the advice given by two members of your own staff who've alerted you to the risks of what you were doing. I mean, I think that also has fed into that uh, impression that she's been, you know, reckless in thinking about how she's approached this and what impact it might have. We've just had uh, our mingle with Tingle, the aura of Laura, Laura Tingle, of course, chief political correspondent at 7.30. I hold in my left hand a remarkable document. It's the Boris Johnson statement which finishes thus, I believe I have much to offer, but I am afraid that this is simply not the right time. Music to my ears. In fact, I wish the whole statement had been set to music and that Boris had sung it. That leads us to our next story as we're joined by Ian Dunt, and Naomi Smith on the ongoing leadership crisis. We have back on the line Ian Dunt. Ian is, of course, columnist with the Eye newspaper, a regular here on the Little Wireless program, and uh, rejoining him tonight is one of his co-hosts on the Oh God, What Now podcast and CEO of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith. Welcome back to both of you. First to you, Ian. You must be feeling rather happy. Yes, I am, actually. 
I actually am feeling genuinely very pleased about the way that this is all going. There was a sort of the three days or so where we thought Johnson was coming back was a sort of crushing period of nihilistic defeat where you just think, well, it's just it, isn't it? We're just never going to grow up as a country. These people are just going to bumble through a whole series of the most mendacious, trivial, self-interested charlatans and keep on plunging the country into crisis. And that will be a market crisis, a constitutional crisis, a moral crisis. I mean, he still had, you know, the Standards Committee looking into him that he would have had to face as prime minister. So that just that whole ghastly specter arises. Now it looks pretty likely, pretty damn likely, really, that Rishi Sunak is going to get it. And he has many, many problems politically. You know, he is wrong about almost everything that he says, but he is wrong at least within the general remit of tolerable political opinion. And the fact that that's what we're going to end up with at the moment is the best that we can possibly hope to attain. Sunak, who in our money is a billionaire, well, through his marriage at least, uh, has at least 180 votes, I understand, which is half the MPs, Ian. Yeah, he looks pretty good to take it. I mean, we're in the, the really final stages of this thing now, and Penny Morden, who's the only person you know left standing running against him, hasn't yet hit the magic number of 100. She says that she's just about to hit it, it's just about to happen, and, you know, we need to have two candidates so it can go to the membership, and there's a full debate over the course of the week. But there aren't that many MPs, Tory MPs, who are named, who are publicly saying that they're supporting her. So it's really not clear whether she, what she's saying is true or not. Talking about not telling the truth, heavens above, Boris told some porkies, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, he's just, it's just pure... He's just... Like, there's no other, I mean, I wish there could be a more sort of, you know, complex mercurial analysis to offer, but he's basically just lying. So his team put out, I think it was 3 p.m. on Saturday, they had over 100 names. Oh, of course, those guys aren't going to tell us who they are. They couldn't tell us who they were, but they insisted <laughs> they had 100 names and they'd hit the threshold. Then 9 p.m. on Sunday night, in the statement that you were just saying, you know, should be put to music, and indeed it should be, he says, oh, but, you know, I'm pulling out, but I could have done it if I'd wanted to, because I've got 102 <laughs> names, you know, the great 102 <laughs> names of people that went to a different school. Now, on what possible basis could he have gone from 100 to 102 over the course of 36 hours? None of that is explained to us. I can hear the gay laughter of Naomi. <laughs> Naomi, tell, tell us about uh, tell us about Mordant. She says, I'm the only candidate who can truly bring the party together and build a winning team. Is anyone buying that? No, and the other thing that's happened this morning is that the ERG, so this is the Re European Research Group of sort of hardline Brexiter uh, MPs met and they put out a statement saying that they could not get behind one unity figure. So they are not declaring for either Mordant or Sunak. And I think that just helps to cement in uh, the eyes and ears of all of us watching this spectacle unfold, that this party is now ungovernable. It is so fractured across so many lines. They are so spent of ideas uh, and, and, and are running on fumes that, no, I don't think she could, because I don't think anybody could at this stage. She's saying she's close to the 100 point, that, you know, she's she's within a hair's breadth of that, just at the time of, you know, of us being on air now, we will know within the next hour or so whether or not she has made it. Going back to last night and Johnson's U-turn on standing and everything that Ian said about the ridiculousness of, oh, no, I've got 100, yeah, no, I've got 102 now. <laughs> um, the... <laughs> Most notably, in terms of his backers who have been humiliated by yet another one of his fibs, is the most notably short-lived Chancellor Nadim Zahawi, who published an opinion piece uh, in the right-wing-leaning Telegraph newspaper backing him minutes, minutes before Johnson then pulled out of the race and that article was swiftly taken down. Ian, all of us make mistakes and on our last encounter you thought Truss uh, had a, you know, another couple of weeks in the job. Perhaps she'd even last till Christmas and you made the point that it was because the Tories didn't have a clear replacement. What the hell happened? I am continuing my track record for being extremely unreliable uh, political <laughs> predictions. I have an almost perfect track record in this regard, so it's entirely in line with that. I mean, really, the thing was, she only had to perform 
at sort of, you know, 80% of her rate of complete catastrophic diligence in order to survive. I mean, really, things are pointing in her directions, calm down markets, no idea of who they wanted to replace, as we've, you know, seen over the last few days, you know, the absolute sort of chaos of it. She really didn't have to do that much to survive. And yet somehow she found a way of sabotaging her own leadership anyway. And she did it through fracking. I mean, that's the most incredible thing. Of all the things to find your career destroyed by, fracking. There is almost no support in this country for fracking, not among the right, the left, the old, the young, university educated, non-university educated, doesn't make any difference. It's deeply unpopular. And yet she made herself vulnerable on it. The opposition Labour Party with a really quite forensic assault, managed to deliver a vote in Parliament that sent her whips, the parliamentary sort of disciplinary function that she operates for her party, into complete disarray. The party fell apart in a night of complete chaos in Westminster. And by the end of it, people just woke up and went, we can't survive another day of her. Like, not even another day. She will absolutely destroy the party. And so in the end, she destroyed her own leadership and most importantly of all, made another one of my predictions entirely incorrect. So she she goes under the... Sorry, she goes under the bus, <laughs> but it's not exactly party gate. But uh, there are rumours that she's been having some quite fun parties celebrating her brief uh, tenure. Oh, yeah, I mean, like it, it's been reported <laughs> this morning that she spent the weekend at the Prime Minister's country retreat, known as Checkers, a sort of palatial mansion in the countryside, and is quoted to have said something to the effect of, well, at least I got to be Prime Minister. And that just gives you a window (laughs) into how they think that this is a game. It's a game to them, not serious responsibility. Johnson treated it with the same contempt. And this is why we need a general election. We've got to get rid of them because they're not taking any of this seriously enough and just to you know put some of this into perspective her economic decisions will cause some people to lose their homes that it is causing people to to default on their bills to not be able to feed their children and heat their homes that's the real life consequence of these monsters um, and they're just not taking it seriously enough. And yet again, the whole country being plunged into this navel-gaving exercise of internecine warfare amongst the Conservative Party. It's, it's grotesque. Alex Andrea from your Oh God, What Now podcast said, and I quote, it was so obvious to anyone looking from the outside that she would be entirely out of her depth. And that leads to an almost to a conspiracy theory with some suggesting, Naomi, that she was set up to fail. <laughs> well, Johnson backed Truss, um, uh, and some have suggested that he did that because he knew she would be a disaster. He'd worked closely with her, um, and that, of course, he wanted to stick it to Rishi, um, who had knifed him, uh, and lay the ground for his own return. And, of course, we know that women in power are so often held to impossible standards. But in this case, Trust really had nobody to blame but herself. She ignored all sound advice. She stacked her cabinet with acolytes and, and people that would say yes to her. And by enacting all of her libertarian fantasies, she crashed the economy and caused hardship for millions. So, you know, a, a lot of the media is focused on who is replacing Trust, trust rather than the consequences of her actions um and you know and as i was saying before you know this this is going to cause people to lose their homes to go hungry public services are going to be cut it is unforgivable and at no point did trust question whether she had what it took to be prime minister and of course the same can be said of johnson they see it as a Opportunity for self-promotion rather than important responsibility. We can hear, well, we heard Ian grinding his teeth, but he thinks he can endure (laughs) the thought of Rishi Sunak. What about you, Naomi? Um, Well, we don't have a choice. Um, It's it's important to keep the pressure up for a general election. Um, Is he a safe pair of hands? relatively speaking he you know might be he appears competent when compared to johnson and trust but that is a catastrophically low bar and he was steering the economy up until june so his fingerprints are all over our current economic woes he was a hardline brexit backer during the referendum and his leadership pledges reveal that you know he's he's more than willing to lurch even further to the right on immigration on economics on spending, on building new homes, which he does not want to do. Um, And, of course, he is also a lawbreaker. Remember, both he and Johnson got those fixed penalty notices for breaking the law during lockdown. 
And he's reconfirmed his commitment to breaking international law by sticking with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which tears up the protocol uh, and the international treaty the UK signed with the EU not that long ago. So, uh, I mean, my, my teeth are already pretty much ground down to stumps. Uh, but uh, <laughs> if we persist. Now, if... Truss is uh, perhaps the most disastrous PM in uh, in British history, Naomi. Rishi Sunak is far and away the wealthiest. How is that going to play out in a country which is under such financial stress? I mean, it's it, it, it always was incomprehensible to me that we could have a chancellor so so many times richer than the average person in the uk i mean we are a very unequal country when it comes to the distribution of wealth he is extraordinarily wealthy and you know much was made of that particularly by team johnson when they were trying to discredit him and his wife's non-dom status tax status uh, and and his green card with the usa and things like that so that was always a problem i think in even in good times i think that you know that there is a challenge to being so out of step with the lives of average people but when you throw into stark contrast with the cost of living emergency that we're facing now it's where inter- people who are even middle class are struggling you know this isn't just a, a poverty issue this is people that consider themselves generally to be quite wealthy to be struggling to pay their bills it is incredibly difficult to see how he can relate to that and i think voters will know that i i take some comfort from the fact he's the he would be the first minority ethnic pm and uh, and of course today hindus are celebrating diwali yeah Absolutely. I mean, I think I think that is wonderful. If we can salvage anything from it, it is that, of course, it's wonderful uh, that we've got our first non-white prime minister. I think that is brilliant and wonderful and absolutely something that, that we should be um, proud of. But uh, let's judge him on his policies, on the things he's done to date, on the things he's pledging to do. And unfortunately, most of those don't signal good news for Britain. Ian, I know that you've got no teeth left, but do you take some consolation in the ethnicity of your hypothetical Prime Minister? Yeah, I do. It's got to be limited, right? Because, I mean, he he hasn't got there through an election. So it it, it doesn't bear any kind of comparison with something like, you know, Obama being elected in the US, where, you know, because the public are involved, it demonstrates something quite conclusively. Here, we don't quite have that that sort of luxury. I mean, it's come through the sort of weird internal processes of the party itself. But nevertheless, there's something quite telling about the moment, Um, not the least of which is how rarely it's mentioned. And that's the thing that really gives you hope, that it really does feel at the moment like an irrelevance. Now, I don't want to put too much confidence in that because it's perfectly possible that over the next couple of years, and I think you will make it for a couple of years, we're going to see some some ugly, mucky stuff sort of emerging from the borough. And you, and you can even hear sometimes with the way that the far right or the hard right, you know, the people around Nigel Farage, the way that they use coded language like globalist for certain kinds of individuals carries with it that kind of ring of dangerous language. And that could continue. But at the moment, I have to say, that is the one positive thing you can say from what's happening today is that he's in that place and he is who he is. Naomi, tell me about that smiling gentleman over there who I believe his name is uh, Keir Starmer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, well, uh, look, Labour needs to take nothing for granted at the moment. They do remain ahead in the polls, but they will face a new and likely more competent Prime Minister in either of the candidates, frankly, than the ones that have come before them. But but let's assume for now it is still likely to be Rishi Sunak. Um, uh, but, you know, Labour are, are in a tricky position because although those poll leads are there, the, the new Prime Minister for the Conservatives might get a little bounce. But there are also a lot of people responding to polls with don't know. So some of those huge poll leads for Keir Starmer's Labour Party have about 20 or sometimes even 30% of people saying they don't know how they're going to vote. Why does this matter? Well, because historically, 
we know that a lot of those don't knows tend to be what pollsters refer to as shy conservatives. So people that when confronted with an actual election rather than answering a question in a poll survey break towards the conservatives. So we could still be in hung parliament territory. Yeah. And before before I let you both but, go, I have to ask you this, Ian. Uh, might he seek an audience with HM later today? Sunak, I mean, almost certainly. I mean, that is almost certainly the way that things are going to go. I mean, it would be a very surprising outcome from where we are right now that we don't have a new prime minister by the end of the day. But, you know, bear in mind that last time I spoke to you, I thought that Liz Truss was going to make it probably until Christmas. So take it with as much salt (laughs) as you need. (laughs) It'll be the first time since 1940 that a new PM has taken over for the second time since the previous general election. Yeah, and it's becoming, look, there's a constitutional reason for that, you know, as, as you guys obviously understand, which is, that, you know, when you have an election, it's basically for the MP, it's not for the prime minister, and this stuff shouldn't be pertinent. But we are now pushing the public acceptance of the validity of that constitutional argument to its very, very limit. Like, there's a real sort of profound sense, an elemental sense in people, if this can't be right, to just keep on swapping them out like this. But, you know, when you come down to it, ultimately, that is the way the constitutional system works, technically, and it is just technically that that thread that it's hanging on, they can do this as much as they like. Look, thank you both for coming on short notice. Ian Dunn, columnist with the I newspaper, and Naomi Smith, chief executive of Best for Britain, a regular guest on the Oh God, What Now podcast alongside the aforementioned Mr Dunt. And coming up, our third mystery, the mystery of Agatha Christie. Well, beloved listeners, it's hard to imagine a world without Agatha Christie. To said she's the best-selling novelist of all time, outsold only by Shakespeare and the Bible, and of course her play The Mousetrap will run for all eternity. But despite producing 80 books over her lifetime, she opted to describe herself, and I quote, as an ordinary housewife. It's just one of the many misconceptions that the queen of crime uh, spun to hide her true self from the world. So here to reveal the real Agatha is historian, broadcaster and author Lucy Worsley. And Lucy, you probably don't remember this, but we last chatted on the program 12 years ago and one of our topics I cannot forget because... They were Queen Victoria's undies. That's exactly the kind of topic that I love talking about, Philip. I, <laughs> I, I love, I love those funny little details about history that can take people back into the past sometimes. Well, you found a great many of those for your latest book, Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman. Uh, why another book? There's been a few on Agatha. Well. I felt that there was uh, the opportunity to come at her story as a historian, which is I am, which is what I am. And I wanted to tell her story as a woman who lived through the 20th century. So she was born in 1890 under Queen Victoria. And by the time she died in 1976, she was as famous as the Rolling Stones. And and you said a minute ago, Philip, you said that it's always said that she's been outsold only by uh, Shakespeare and the Bible. And what gets me every time I hear that is that unlike um, Shakespeare and, well, I suppose, I suppose God, Agatha Christie is a woman. You know, she achieved her amazing achievements in a world that was then made by men. So I wanted to look at the ways in which she kind of secretly broke the rules for women, which she certainly did, although she kept pretty quiet about it. She was born into affluence, wasn't she? Uh, She grew up in a quite substantial Victorian villa. Yes, that's right. She lived a life. She had an idyllic childhood. She was greatly loved by her wealthy parents. There were servants, there were 
there was lots of food. She always loved food. It's one of the things <laughs> that I feel I have in common with her. She really loved cream. And later in life, she didn't enjoy the taste of alcohol. So she wanted to celebrate something. She didn't have a glass of champagne. She drank a glass of neat cream <laughs> instead. Would you believe it? <laughs> but this this whole um, this whole idyll in in Torquay, the town where she lived, it came to an end because the family lost its money and she lost her father. So uh, there was there was you know there was a canker in the Garden of Eden. I didn't realise she had no formal education. It's so interesting, you know. Um, one of the things that explains a lot about her is the fact that she was born in 1890. But she lived for so long that she was almost living in a different world when it was the 1970s. And her, the, the values of her Victorian childhood was, was still with her and made her seem kind of out of step in the later part of the 20th century. But her parents believed that it was her destiny to get married. And if you educated a girl, it might actually stop her from achieving the purpose of her life, which which was marriage. So Agatha was basically an autodidact. Um, <laughs> there was a funny moment when her, her nanny came to her mother and said, I'm awfully sorry, ma'am, but Miss Agatha has taught herself to read. I think that's absolutely marvellous. And she described the philosophy you're describing as you were waiting for the man. And when the man came, he would change your entire life. Now, she never described herself as a feminist, well, for pretty obvious reasons, but uh, you say that the way she lived her life says something very different. I think that if you look at Agatha Christie's actions rather than her words then you get a very different impression of what her what her motivations may have been and do you know in the early part of her career in the 1920s she would make surprisingly confident statements about her ambition what she wanted to achieve how the fact that she liked being a working woman a working mother even but then mm, then we come to the notorious year of 1926, by which time she was already a famous and celebrated writer. But in 1926, everything changed for her. And after 1926, uh, a year in which she got this huge public shaming, that's the way I read it, a huge public shaming. After that point, you never hear any more statements of ambition from her. You get this whole, oh, I'm I'm a housewife. Um, I'm just a married woman. Um, my success just sort of happened to me by accident. I can't really explain it at all. She worked well into old age, as you point out, and uh, celebrated life after menopause through Miss Marple. Well, <laughs> one of the reasons that uh, my favourite Agatha Christie character of a lot of them is Miss Mar is Miss Marple, is because I think that Miss Marple stands for Agatha herself. So Miss Marple emerges in a novel for the first time in. Uh, 1930. And by 1930, Agatha had gone through a, a terrible incident. What happened to her in 1926? I'm teasing about what this might have been. But by 1930, she had remarried. She was with her second husband. And she had sort of found her, found her stride, I suppose. She'd entered into her power. And now she was ready to create Miss Marple, who is an independent woman. And Everybody overlooks her. Of course they do, because she looks like just a little old lady. But to underestimate Miss Marple is kind of like to underestimate Agatha Christie. You will come in time to realise that that's the smartest person in the room. Let's walk it back, Lucy, and tell us about the tipping point this particular year you keep alluding to. Well, in 1926, um, this is the best known thing that happened in Agatha Christie's life to most people. It's the thing that they know about her after her writing, if they know anything at all. In 1926, she got caught up in a real life crime drama. It sounds like the sort of thing that you get from the pen of Agatha Christie herself. And what happened in 1926 is that she disappeared. She vanished there was a huge national manhunt for her that lasted for 11 days. And at the end of the 11 days, she was discovered living under a false name in a hotel in Harrogate, 
which is in Yorkshire, which is 200 miles away from where she was living at the time in, in Berkshire. And at the time when she was discovered, this narrative sprang up amongst journalists. The narrative was that she was a bad person, that she'd done this as a publicity stunt to sell books, that she caused an awful lot of trouble by selfish behavior. Or, and this is another version of the story, and I can see the attraction of this one. This story goes that she disappeared deliberately. She'd hidden herself away in order to frame her cheating husband for having murdered her. She wanted to pin <laughs> the murder of herself on him. But that's neither of those things are are true. And what I what annoys me, Philip, is that still in the world today, many people believe that narrative that in 1926 she did, disappeared deliberately as some kind of a trick. And it's not true at all. And Agatha in the 20s actually explained to the world what had happened to her. But the thing is, the world didn't want to listen because the story that she told is one that's hard to hear. It makes people uncomfortable. She actually said what I had in 1926 when I disappeared was a really distressing incident of mental illness. I was experiencing suicidal thoughts. All I wanted to do was to get away from my cheating husband, the pressure of my life, and to form a new identity for myself. So, you know, people talk about the mystery of the disappearance. It isn't a mystery at all. Agatha herself explained what had happened. It's just that her explanation wasn't one that people wanted to hear. Her work during the First World War is crucial to her and our understanding of her. Yes, I totally agree with you. And part of the reason that people didn't want to hear that Agatha Christie had had these mental health issues in 1926 is because of this big debate that was going on in the 1920s about the nature of shell shock, which was a form of trauma experienced by many um, of the combatants in World War I. Except that some people thought they were shirking. You see, there was always this doubt about whether the shell-shocked were really ill or whether they were trying it on. And Agatha, during the war, sort of stepped off the expected course through life, I suppose. Uh, during the war, she had by then married, but because her husband was serving in France, she wasn't able to live a normal married lady's life. She had to go on living at home with her mother. And to support the war effort, she started to work as a nurse. Now, for an Edwardian young married lady to be working, it was just unheard of. So she was in this hospital earning money and doing really difficult, dirty things. You know, she assisted at operations without any proper training, it has to be said. And she had to do things like taking an amputated leg down to the hospital furnace to be burnt. She was having these difficult, dark experiences. And then, like all of the nurses in World War I, I think, she had to go home to her mama and not say, not say that she'd done these things because people were keen to contain the horror of war. And I think this is essential for a detective writer because as a writer, she'll become obsessed with the masks that people wear, the way that people keep up a facade when inside themselves they're experiencing something very different. In every one of Agatha's stories, you know, there's somebody who appears to be respectable, nice, smiling, trustworthy, but actually that person has a secret, that person has the capacity to be a murderer. Most of us are aware that she also trained as a pharmacist assistant, uh, where, of course, she became familiar with poisons. Yes, the war itself, I feel, was a kind of a macro reason that she became a detective novelist. But when she moved from the wards of the hospital into a new job in the hospital dispensary, this was the, the micro reason, this was a tipping point, because... While she was working in the dispensary, it was her job to mix up medicines, which was very responsible work. Because if you made a tiny slip, you could turn a medicine from life-saving into something that was poisonous. And the other thing, as well as this awareness, knowledge of poisons and toxicity, the other thing that her time in the dispensary gave her was... Uh, empty hours because she would sit there waiting for the prescriptions to come in. And during these empty hours, 
she got out a notebook and she started to write. And uh, it makes sense when you think about it. She would be writing her first detective novel in this year, 1916. Uh, it's called The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and it features a death by poisoning. And it also features a young lady character who works in the dispensary of a wartime hospital. There's quite a lot of Agatha's own life that she's woven into her books and stories. Lucy, she rose to fame quite quickly after the war. What was it about her books that were so appealing to audiences at the time? Quite interesting that um, she... She took a little time to get published. So her, her first book didn't actually come out until 1920. During the war, there'd been paper shortages. She was an unknown author. But by 1920, I think the publishers were starting to think, hey, we are ready now for a new type of author. And when she, when she got her first publishing deal, she said, oh, of course, I'll publish my work under a male pseudonym. That's what women have to do, isn't it? But the publisher actually said, no. You should use your own name, Mrs. Agatha Christie. And I think the publisher was aware that since 1918, um, some women had had the vote. Uh, Women like Agatha had been out in the workplace for the first time. Um, They were ready for stories by women. And also what Agatha's stories do, um, they feature a lot of female characters and People were ready for a form of entertainment that would take them away from, you know, the the realities of war. Sometimes this 1920s detective fiction is called the literature of convalescence. And it was just the sort of thing literally to read in bed if you were wounded and if you wanted to get better. And also because it took you out of yourself, it engaged you but it didn't um, super challenge you unless you were the sort of person who could read the critique of society that's buried in Agatha's works. It could could distract you from the horrors of war. It's interesting that uh, she thought she'd have to publish under a male pseudonym. It was so common at the time in Australia. Some of our great women writers like Henry Handel Richardson had uh, had to follow that example. Now... We should remember that she wrote things other than crime fiction. She wrote poetry and she was also a playwright. Yes, she was extremely prolific in all sorts of different genres. But obviously, <laughs> she, she discovered quite quickly that what sold best was Poirot. And uh, although there's lots to like about Poirot, he did become a bit of a milestone around her neck. She said later on, oh, he's a bit of a pain, isn't he, Poirot? You know, I am the great detective. He's so full of himself the whole time. And she also wrote what she called her thrillers, which um, are kind of spy stories, much less well known today. And then she also wrote, and this is really interesting, a uh, a whole series of books which aren't detective uh, fiction or or thrillers. They're kind of like um, literary fiction. And they are about women's lives, really, women's motives, what they think about the world. And she published them under a pseudonym, a pseudonym uh, which is Mary Westmacott. And these all started to be published after 1926, after her breakdown and after she'd received psychiatric help, treatment, psychoanalysis, actually. And I think that her doctors were saying, look, you're a writer, you can write yourself better by telling the story of your life in what are actually semi-autobiographical works of fiction. And the people who knew her best said, look, if you want to know who Agatha Christie really was, go and read those Mary Westmacott books. That was her way of telling us, although she did it in a very devious way. Are they still in print? Yes, yes. A lot of people are still interested in them, not because they're great works of literature, but because for what they reveal about Agatha herself. And it's so so interesting, isn't it, that by the time she died, her name wasn't Agatha Christie, because she divorced that guy. It wasn't Mary Westmacott. That had always been a made-up name. By the time she died, she was actually called Mrs. Max Mallowan. And these these are the ways in which she protected herself after that public shaming that she got in 1926. I'm very glad she uh, met and married Max, because that leads us into the archaeological novels, you know, the 
Death on the Nile and books like that. Yes. After she had got divorced from the cheating rat of a first husband, uh, she decided to make a fresh start in life to get right away. And she went to rather an unusual place to, <laughs> to begin her new life. She went to Iraq. She went on this rather adventurous solo trip. Uh, <laughs> and now she was a divorced woman and she began to uh, experience all kinds of overtures to her. Um, people started proposing marriage. She got invited by one Italian gentleman to a night of pleasure while she was on the on the journey. And she put him off, Philip, by saying that as an English woman, she was naturally frigid. <laughs> that worked. <laughs> And of course, <laughs> the aforementioned Max was an archaeologist. Now, let's let's move on because we're running out of time. One thing you acknowledge is that her books contain quite abhorrent views on race and class. This has to be confronted, doesn't it? Mm, yes, like many of the writers of the so-called so-called golden age of detective fiction, there are attitudes there that her readers would have subscribed to about race and class that just aren't acceptable today. And I do find sometimes young people reading Christie for the first time say, oh, I, I, I don't like this. It makes me uncomfortable. But, you know, as a historian, I would say that in fact, you have to read this stuff. You have to know what very large numbers of British and American people believed about the world in the 20s, the 30s and onwards, because, you know, it's left its traces in the world that we live in today. So I think that it's it, it's quite it's quite complicated to discuss in the work of Agatha Christie because her work sort of uses stereotypes. She tricks you into thinking... This is this is the way the world is. And sometimes that's a positive thing. Sometimes she tricks you into thinking, oh, a little old lady has got nothing to offer to society. Miss Marple obviously does. Hercule uh, Poirot, he's, he's a Belgian refugee. He's got a foreign accent. He's got a funny moustache. He's not been to public school. He has got nothing to offer society, but then you realise that he does. Um, but sometimes she uses those stereotypes in a way that jars, that, that doesn't still work today. But, you know, that's not a reason to shut your eyes and go tut-tut. Let's not wait another 12 years before your next appearance, Lucy. I've been talking oh, to uh, Lucy so Worsley, Chief uh, Curator at Historic Royal Palaces, and we've been discussing her latest book, Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman, published in Australia by Hachette. And that's your lot on our next Asia Pirouette with Bruce as the countdown to the midterms continues. And we're going to find all about Sydney's own leper colony. Don't miss it. to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.